Welcome to the Mission Gathering Thornton message cast. The entertainment world was in a tizzy. Katrina, I'm thinking of you because hopefully you'll like this. I'm sorry to throw Katrina out, but um, the few months ago, the entertainment world was in a tizzy because it was announced that um, the beloved Spider-Man was leaving the MCU due to a dispute between Marvel Comics and Sony. Now, for those like me who are like, what the heck is the MCU? Let me explain. Um, so uh, the MCU stands for the Marvel Cin- Cinematic. Well, I can't even say it. Cinematic. Cinematic Universe. Let me get my words right. Uh, and it's an American media franchise and shared universe centered on superhero films, independently produced um, by Marvel Studios and based on characters that appear in the Marvel comics. So back in August, like I said, it was, it was announced that the Spider-Man franchise would be disappearing from the big screens due to a dispute between, again, Marvel and uh, Sony Pictures. And I guess uh, Disney, our friends Disney, own Marvel now, so really it's between Disney and Sony. Now, fortunately for fans of Spidey, it, it, seems, that, that if a deal, it seems that if a deal has been struck and a third rendition of Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man will be in the works for 2021, I think. Now, frankly, uh, I'm fine if nothing happens with Spider-Man because, for me, I'm not a big comic book fan, uh, and, or, but more so, the only real Spider-Man, in my opinion, is the early 2000s Spider-Man trilogy. Now, I don't know how many of you remember those films, um, but it was really the, the, what's his name now? I can't remember it. Um, Tobey Maguire, thank you. Tobey Maguire, uh, Kirsten Dunst, and then who else? Uh, James Franco, right? Those are my only. That's that's the real Spider-Man, in my opinion. And you know, if if you di- if you don't disagree, I mean, we're gonna have to have words after this. I mean, because a, I guess part of it is I have a huge, you know, uh, Kirsten Dunst has always been like a lifelong crush of mine. Uh, B, um, yeah, I mean, Kirsten Dunst, she, she's so beautiful. It's like Kirsten Dunst. Plus, you know, like. Uh, James Franco is just like a super cool uh, Harry in that movie, and then you know, how many of us, how many of us don't we just feel like the the Tobey Maguire, like Peter Parker, the dorky kid who's trying to fit in? Like, yes, like those are the movies, and um, that's the only movies that that Spider-Man movies that exist in my mind. So, um, I was thinking about, um, like I said. And, you know, what else comes to mind with that movie is if you remember um, the Upside Down Kiss, right? Yeah. So this is a funny story. I was in Bible college back then when that movie came out. And in 2003, the year after, we were having a movie night at, at Bible college. And they're showing Spider-Man. And <laughs> I remember one of my wife's good friends, uh, she came to the movie night just so she could see that kiss. And like you'd expect from like a really conserved Bible college, they fast forwarded through the kiss. Can you believe that? So she like got up, left, said, I only came for the kiss and I'm leaving. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the best, those are the best Spider-Man movies. But what else, the other thing that comes to mind, uh, I remember from that, those movies, is the, um, is the, uh, the, the fight scene, if you remember when uh, Peter Parker, he first gets his, he gets his powers, and he's trying to get some money to buy a car to impress MJ. So what does he do? You know, he's, he's got his powers, and he has his Uncle Ben 
drop him downtown. I think it was, I think he told people he's going to the library, right? Isn't that what he told his Uncle Ben? Like, I'm going to the library. So he drops him off at the library and he sneaks back into this underground fighting circuit. And, and, and you know, he has like, he's going off against this huge muscle-bound guy and they drop the cage down, right? And then, you know, surprise everyone, he beats up this guy. And the next thing we see, we see him in the office of the fight promoter and the fight promoter's like counting the money. And then he hands Peter hundred bucks, right? And Peter's like, what the heck? You know, I was supposed to get $3,000. That's what the ad says. And the, the fight promoter's like, hey, if you read the fine print, it says you have to go for three minutes. You beat him in two, so you get a hundred bucks. And Peter's like, I really need that money. And the guy's like, what does he say? I missed the part where that's my problem, right? So the next thing we see, um, you know, Peter sulks out of the office, and the next thing is uh, some armed robber, like, storms into the office, demands the money, and then the next scene, Peter's at the end of the hallway, right? And you see the armed robber sprinting down the hallway, and Peter just does one of these, right? He's just, whoop, guy goes into the elevator, and then what happens? Um, the cop comes running down, he's like, hey, you could have taken that guy apart, and then after that, the fight promoter comes down, and he's like, Hey, why don't you stop that guy? You know, he's going to get away with all my money. And what, is, what does Peter say to him? I miss the part where that's my problem. Right? So then after that, you know, we see Peter. He goes out onto the street. And then, and then there's like this commotion. Right? There's this commotion down the street. And Peter is concerned. And he, he sneaks in and he squeezes his way through the crowd. And then to his... To his horror, to his terror, it's his Uncle Ben shot laying on the sidewalk, shot by the carjacker, that very same person who had robbed the promoter. We can only imagine, or at least I can wonder, as Peter was standing there, kneeling there over his dying Uncle Ben, what was going through his mind in those last moments as he saw the horror unfolding in front of him. Perhaps those words that Uncle Ben had told to him came to mind. With great power comes great responsibility. Remember those words? No matter how we feel about Spider-Man or Peter Parker or Tobey Maguire or Kirsten Dunst, you have to be a Kirsten Dunst fan. Come on, she's super cute. But I'll leave that. Um, you know, I think we can all understand the sentiment that was expressed by the fight promoter, right? And then again by Peter Parker. I miss the part where that's my problem. In our, in our life today, though we're not in a, in a superhero movie, I think we can have that same sentiment, that same feeling in ourselves today. See, we've just got, we've just got so much problems, so much trouble in our world today that it just seems like it's too much. I mean, last week, what? It was the, the news of the woman being shot by the, killed by the officer in, in Fort Worth, Adiana uh, Jefferson, killed in her own home. It seems like every day we're hearing about some impending doom about climate change and how the world's going to end. And then we've got a circus, a swirl of activity and drama happening in our own nation's capital. And just, it's a lot. It's a lot. 
So it can be easy for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus who believe in God, to simply throw up our hands, whether it's in uh, exoneration or desperation, and just ask God to fix everything for us. And while at times this may seem like an, an act of desperation, we're like, God, what the heck do I do? In some ways, like, that's what people tell us to do. Like, that's what many religious leaders suggest we do. Just leave it up to God. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I would, I would hang out with my, my group of friends, and it seemed like uh, I, I was always engaging in some, like, uh, controversial conversations. And part of it was me just being a 20-something-year-old, like, trying to figure out who I was and, and wanting to, like, stir up controversy and enjoy some, you know, controversial conversations, but, but part of me was just, like, exasperated whenever, like, I'd be in conversation with these friends, and we talk about what's going on in the world, I'd just be like, meh, stuff happens, we gotta let God fix it, and I was just like, what? That can't be right. I remember, I remember just being exasperated by that kind of attitude, and, and uh, I'm gonna reveal my age here, so please don't judge me, um, so I turned 18 in the year 2000. Sad, I'm getting old. <laughs> but if you think about, if you can remember back that long ago, what did we see in, the, in the, that decade? I mean, September of 2001 was 9-11. 2002 and 2003 were like the Afghan, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars that, you know, we saw so many soldiers lose their lives, come back harmed. 2004 was the, the uh, tsunami in the Indian Ocean that killed like 300,000 people. 2005 was Hurricane Katrina with, you know, thousands of people lost their lives. Hundreds of thousands lost their homes. 2007, the Virginia Tech shooting, like still this day, the deadliest shooting, school shooting in America. And man, 2008, 2009, the Great Recession. For those of us who lived during that, that was no joke, right? I remember like... That was about the time where I was like out of college trying to find a job and you just like you just like submit application and application, application, applications like we're not hiring, we're not hiring, we're not hiring, we're not hiring. Brutal times. And then 2010 was the, the Haiti earthquake, if you remember that, and then the, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. It was just a lot, and I remember all this pain and tragedy in my early adulthood and thinking about how could how could my friends just be like not my problem. God's going to take care of it if God wants to. And I just, I found that, I found that answer just deeply unsatisfying. I mean, they were just of the opinion that, that God was in control of everything. And, and if God wanted something fixed, God would fix it. And we really can't do anything about it. And as much as, as, as much as I disagreed with their assertion, I really didn't have the words to say otherwise because that's what I had been taught myself that, you know, I guess, I guess that's just the way it is. Only now as I saw this endless or seemingly endless stream of pain and tragedy and suffering, you know, unfolding around me, I was just like, this doesn't work. That can't be true. Surely that's not it. There has to be another way, right? There has to be another way. Last week we were 
Uh, last week I wasn't here. Nellis was here. And I should say, uh, Nellis texted me this morning. Uh, Nellis and Suzanne and Baby are all happy and healthy. So, yay for Nellis. Uh, but Nellis was speaking. Can you believe that? Nine months pregnant. She's speaking an awesome message. So, you know, good for Nellis, and she'll be doing that more. So you're going to want to be here uh, in the future, and you'll get to see her baby and hear her speak again. So she's an awesome mom. Going to be. They're going to be great moms, parents. Um, but anyway, Nellis kicked off our series, Jesus for President, Jesus 2020, in which we're looking at the ways uh, we're called as followers of Jesus to live as Christians beyond the walls of the church. And though we're technically not in a church here, I think you get the idea, right? Um, and, you know, maybe when you're listening to her, her words and her, her calls for social justice, you're thinking to yourself, huh, I, I thought that was all in God. Like, isn't God supposed to fix everything? How's, and we, we don't mean this derogatory, derogatorily or disrespectfully, but we're just like, hey, I don't, I, I don't understand. I thought that was God's thing, right? I thought that was, that was what God does. Well, as, as Nellis spoke about last week, and we'll continue to talk about this week, the Bible does have something to say about that. So, so last week, Nellis was talking about the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who spoke out again and again for, for social justice, as Nellis explain, explained, in his time. So this week, we're, we're going to be talking about a similar figure named Jeremiah. Uh, so, so for those uh, unfamiliar with the Old Testament, Jeremiah, uh, there's a book of the Bible named Jeremiah, uh, who's, it's named after this, this character, Jeremiah, and it falls uh, in order just after the book of Isaiah, which is named after, would you believe it, Isaiah. So Jeremiah was a prophet who lived uh, in, the, in the same country that Jesus grew up in and lived in, but some almost 600 years before the time of Jesus. So the interesting, the interesting thing about uh, Jeremiah, though, was he was basically one of the last people to live as, as a free man in, as an independent country. Because uh, when Jeremiah was alive, some people from this army from Babylon came in, and they conquered his country called Judah. And for the next almost 600 years from that time on, even to the point of Jesus, the country of Judah was just constantly being conquered and uh, dominated by these foreign superpowers of that time. So when Jeremiah was alive, uh, this, this nation of Babylon came in and they conquered Judah. And just basically, you know, they, they dominated the whole region of the world, if you can imagine. And for a while, you know, they had, the country of Judah, they had, they had maintained some freedom through some political wheeling and dealing and some independence, but eventually... Babylon just had it out for them. And they came and they conquered uh, their capital, which was the, the city of Jerusalem. If you've heard of Jerusalem. And they came and they conquered their capital. And it was just, as you can, as you can perhaps imagine, it was just a, a brutal time. And we would probably all, whether in, in history class, in, in school, or growing up, read about these, these ancient uh, battle sieges and how they just basically starve out you know, a capital city. So these Babylonians, they came in and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they just starved them out and they conquered them. And, you know, for these people of Jerusalem and for the country of Judea, if you can imagine, it was, it was just a brutal time. 
I mean, it destroyed the national and the family life. It shook the very theological, theological and political foundations of these people's identity. You know, many lost loved ones, land, livelihood. And what's worse, many people were actually deported from their country. They were taken all the way to Babylon to live there. And perhaps the worst of all was that the, the palace where the, where the king lived and the temple, which was, you know, we might compare to their, to that was their, their place of worship, their church essentially back then, they were destroyed. This was, this was essentially the, the collapse of political, ideological, and theological symbols of who they were as a people, as a country. For modern day comparisons, I think, for me, the only thing that comes to mind that we can perhaps relate to this kind of turmoil and upheaval is, again, thinking back to 9-11 when, you know, if you remember at 9-11, it was the World Trade Center, it was the Pentagon, and then ultimately the plan was for the Pennsylvania, the, the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania was, was ultimately aimed for the capital. So if you think about, you know, the World Trade Center economic center, Pentagon a military center, capital, political center. Like, for us as Americans at 9-11, we had this, you know, upheaval and threat to our economic, our military, and our political centers. You know, 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, in Jerusalem, their whole life, these people's whole lives was turned upside down, and then worse, they were, many of them were taken hundreds of miles away to live in this place they'd never even been to. And for those who were taken by force to live in Babylon, it was, I mean, it was a devastating time. So if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, um, the book of Psalms have many different poems and, and kind of like songs in them. Some are really positive. That's kind of what we're familiar with is really, really positive Psalms. But Psalm 137 was actually an ancient uh, psalm written by these people in Babylon, just kind of lamenting, crying, like depressed about what was going on in their city. And we can read it here together. Um, it says, alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down crying because we remembered Zion. Zion was what they called, that was kind of what the, the word they used for their city, Jerusalem. They're sitting beside the streams of Babylon crying because they remembered Babylon. We, we hung our lyres like an ancient musical instrument upon the trees because that's where our captors asked us to sing. If you can imagine, if you can imagine a, a situation where you're taken by force to another country and your captors are like, hey, sing me a song about your homeland, being very, very depressing. Says our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on a foreign land? I mean, I don't know if you can, if you can, if you can quite grasp the devastation and just turmoil going on in these people's hearts and minds as they were in Babylon. We can practically feel the pain and anguish seeping through their words. And it, it's no wonder when certain religious leaders in that time period, while this was going on, certain religious leaders back home in Jerusalem said, Hey, you know what? I have some good news. 
this thing is going to be over soon and we're going to be back to our homeland in no time. So these people uh, who wrote the Psalm 137, these words were like, hey, that is great news. So we're going to read, uh, we're going to read in Jeremiah 28. Um, one of these people, uh, these, one of these, these people said, one of these religious said, hey, the Lord of heavenly hosts, the God of Israel proclaims, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon in two years, I will restore this place. So this wasn't Jeremiah's words. This was another person's words. And another religious leader said, hey, guess what? Good news. In two years, uh, Babylon's going to be conquered and you're going to be back home. So, so, you know, the people obviously were all excited about this. But Jeremiah, uh, <laughs> kind, of, kind of classic to the, the tune of like an Old Testament prophet who's constantly bringing bad news, it seemed. That Jeremiah the prophet had to come to these people and say, I'm sorry, this is not true. Those words are not true. This isn't going to happen. This is not going to be a quick fix by God. And Jeremiah actually writes a letter. Again, Jeremiah was in Judah, probably in Jerusalem, and he writes a letter to the people in Babylon telling them to buckle down and prepare for the long haul. We're going to read it together. It's from Jeremiah uh, chapter 29. So Jeremiah writes these words to these people who are in Babylon. He says, The Lord of heavenly hosts, the God of Israel, proclaims to all the exiles I have carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, cultivate gardens, and eat what they produce. More so, Jeremiah wrote, Get married, have children, then help your sons find wives and your daughters find husbands in order that they may too have children and increase in number, there so that you don't dwindle away. And it's the last thing that, that Jeremiah said in this letter that really piques my interest. He says, promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because your future, your future depends on its welfare. Huh. Your future Depends on its welfare. Promote the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray the Lord for it because your future depends on its welfare. Hmm. You know, as as I've mentioned in the past, uh, Old Testament prophets, these people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they weren't weren't like prophets as as like we think of the word. We think of the word prophet and we think like like a fortune teller or someone who just predicts the future. And and these Old Testament prophets that are more like uh, they're more like they can kind of like see the signs like see what's happening and like say like I I think the easy way to say I I think of them like weather weather people right? Like they they study the data they see the cloud patterns coming like it's like this is probably what's going to happen. And if we don't change our ways, this is definitely going to happen. So, so Jeremiah is saying to these people, hey, you need to take responsibility for your actions. You need to change your behavior, uh, a biblical word we call repent. And he wants, Jeremiah wanted them to understand that their future was just as much in their hands as it was in God's hands. A little later down in this chapter is a verse that Jeremiah writes that we're probably very well familiar with if we've been around any kind of Christian uh, 
especially if it had been around any Christian products or advertising. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have in mind for you, declares the Lord. They are peace, plans for peace, not disaster, to give you a future filled with hope. We probably all heard that scripture at one time in our lives before. And as much as we understand that verse today is talking to us about God having a perfect plan laid out for us, we kind of think about it like we just need to simply ride along and sit back and enjoy the ride. But looking at this verse in its context, again, that verse 29-11, I know the plans I have in mind for you, comes right after Jeremiah had just told these people to settle down, get married, plant gardens, and pray for their city. So to me, it seems like what God is saying is, I want the best for you. I want you to succeed. But for that to happen, you have to do your part. You know, even today, some 2,500 years later, we have voices, we have leaders, we have people telling us, everything's going to be fine. We don't need to do anything. We just need to sit back. God's going to fix everything. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. But I believe those words that Jeremiah spoke some 2,500 years ago still ring true. They still matter to us today. Promote the welfare of your city. Pray for it. Because your future depends on it. And, and, I, and I don't think Jeremiah was just telling the people just to pray for everyone to be simply, just pray that everybody be well and good. You know, we, we, we hear it a lot today, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And that's important. I believe thoughts and prayers are important, don't get me wrong. But last week, Nels, again, she spoke about, um, she spoke about these Hebrew, these, these words in the original Hebrew in which they're, they're written, meaning social justice. So I want us to understand this week, when we read the word welfare, the word in the original Hebrew is actually the word shalom. Perhaps you've heard that word before, shalom. It's a Hebrew word, which means wholeness, completeness, or peace. And what's interesting is uh, this shalom is meant to apply to every area of our lives, from our personal lives, to our relationships, to our family, to the community we live in, to our whole country. That was God's dream for those people long ago, to find shalom in their lives, whether they're in Jerusalem or in Babylon. And I believe that those dreams, God's dreams for us today, just like they were long ago, are for peace, for completeness, for wholeness in every area of our lives and our society. But just like it was back then, I don't think it's something that God is just going to hand over to us. I think it's just like like the words that Jeremiah wrote to those people long ago saying, hey, you've got to do your part. We've got to do our part. Our future depends on it. So the, so the way I see it, the choice is really up to us. We can be like Peter Parker or we can be like Spider-Man. We can stand 
aside, move out of the way when we see tragedy and violence and suffering in our world. And just be like, I missed the part where that's my problem. Or we can use the power, the resources, the opportunities that we have within us and before us to bring welfare, to bring peace, to bring shalom. And maybe you're sitting here, you're like, Lauren, I don't have any power. I don't have any resources. What opportunities do I have? And if I can be, if I can say this, we all have opportunities. We all have resources. You know, the people who don't, who want us to think we don't, the people who, uh, the reason people don't want us to have, think we have resources and power and opportunities to bring change because they don't want us to use that power, those resources, and those opportunities. We all have little things we can do to bring peace, to bring God's peace to ourselves, to our families, to our communities. Because like Uncle Ben said, right? Do you remember what Uncle Ben said, those famous words? We all have resources, we all have opportunities, we all have p power. We need to remember that with power, great power, comes great responsibility. And maybe we don't have, all of us don't have great power. And probably if we're real, some of us in this room have more power than other people in this room because of our skin color, because of our sexuality, because of our, our income, because of the opportunities before us. No matter, we all have a responsibility to help others and bring God's shalom to our families, to our communities, I believe to our world. You know, despite the shallow promises of others that everything will work out in the end and nothing will be required of us, I believe we will only find peace and shalom for ourselves and for our families when we help find peace and shalom for our community, for our country, for our world. I mean, that's what we want, right? That's what we want for our families, for our communities. We want it for our relationships. We want it for our kids. We want it for our finances. We want wholeness. We want peace. But it starts with you and it starts with me. So, we, so we've got to get busy. We've got to start planting those gardens. As Jeremiah said, looking for opportunities that we can plant God's peace. We can share God's love. Because that's God's plan for us. That's God's dream for us. And that's how I believe that those words in Jeremiah 29, 11 still matter to us. God says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans of peace and not disaster. To give you a future filled with hope. May it be so. Hey, thanks for tuning in with us this week. You can check back for new messages each Tuesday. If you're in the Denver area, come see us this Sunday. You can 
Find out more about our service times as well as the mission and vision of M.G. Thornton at mgthornton.org. That's M-G-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N dot O-R-G. See you next week.